This message was recorded at Devoted, a Christ Central Festival for all the family. To find out more about Devoted, please visit devotedevent.org. Okay, once again, good morning. Welcome to everyone. Uh, just to do that little zone, life zone check. This is the marriage life zone. And it's great to have you. If you've been here for all three, uh, it's just so great to see you again. And, and trust that you've found it helpful so far. And I know you're going to find it helpful this morning. If you're here uh, for the first time, you just dropped into this one, you're just as welcome. And, uh, and I know it's going to be a real blessing to you. Okay, uh, we've got that text number up again. If you want to text questions through, uh, we can take those just as the life zone goes on. And we're going to do our best to make time for Q&A at the end. Um, it's my privilege to introduce John and Karen Cook to you. Uh, there you go. Who've come with their own supporters club. And uh, John and Karen are based in Penrith. Uh, he leads the... Uh, King's Church Eden and in Cumbria. And Cheryl and I have had the privilege of knowing them for, I reckon, 15, 16 years maybe. And, uh, but during that time, we worked closely. We helped serve churches together in Cumbria and Lancashire. And we've got to know them very well as friends, very, very good friends. And part of our friendship has been a, a, a very deep level of openness actually together and uh, they it is true that they have challenged us as a couple uh, in fact that they've done that more recently than we've done it to them you know uh, that just over this last year the things they were concerned about uh, about ourselves in terms of time and priorities and things like that and they they had a very helpful conversations with us and there have been times they've asked us for help as well and that's what I want to say about this couple, that they're not afraid to ask for help, that they're very honest, and today is going to be very honest. Not that the others haven't been, but by the nature of what they're talking about, uh, there's quite a high degree of vulnerability today, okay? That comes from a very honest heart, but also a heart to really let Jesus be the answer, and if there's one consistent theme through everything that Lee and Stacey, myself and Cheryl have shared and that they will share, is that Jesus, in a, really the basic problem in our marriage is in here. And the answer to that problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. Uh, but again, we're going to hear their story and we're going to hear a bit of their struggles and we're going to hear how God's helped them through that. And in that, I believe God's going to really help us, whatever, kind of wherever our marriage is at. If we were to take a, a, a kind of health check on our marriage, whether it's kind of a bit mm, not so good or whether it's going well, whatever, I believe there's hope and help as we open, uh, as we open our hearts to God. And so because of that, we're going to pray again. We're going to get Cheryl just to lead us now as we pray and uh, just encourage you to have a real open heart. The reason we want to pray for one another is it sounds easy, doesn't it? The problem is in here, and the answer is the gospel. It's true. It's not easy. 
it's a process, isn't it, for all of us? And and this is this particular morning when you have people standing up being super vulnerable in a Christian setting, it's difficult, right? And the enemy always wants to attack that kind of level of honesty and vulnerability because so often we don't do that but it's really healthy if we can do that so we're going to pray for them and for you (laughs) okay father we we just thank you lord for the privilege of being together just some time out lord where we can hear from you and hear from other people and hear you in them lord jesus i want to ask that as john and karen share this morning lord you would help them Holy Spirit, you are our helper. Would you come alongside them, Lord? And would you come alongside each one of us, Lord, even if what they're sharing doesn't directly relate into our marriage? Lord, we're in situations where we have friends, Christians and non-Christians, who will be in some of the stuff and having some of the reactions and all of that that John and Karen will be talking about. Help us, Lord, to help others. Father God, we want to commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi. Um, Last night, Jeremy said that God takes us to the end of our comfort zones. Um, Currently, mine's well out of sight. I'm a bit like a homing pigeon. I'm I'm trying to get back to it, but uh, I'm going to stay in the room and stick with it. (laughs) Anyway, so we've heard already how we enter marriage um, kind of as two damaged people. Um, And I think just not aware of how damaged. Um, We certainly weren't aware of that. We were young when we met and we were both Christians. So we thought we were set up quite well to have um, a good marriage. So um, we're just going to share our story um, and just kind of tell what God has done with us in it all. So um, I'm Karen. I'm married to John. We've been married for um, 26 years nearly now. And we've got um, two children, um, Dan, who's 24, and Beth, who's 21. Um, And I think... um, yeah, they've been a real blessing to us in our marriage and um, probably kept us together at some moments in it. But, um, I grew up um, in Cumbria um, on a remote um, farm and I had a very happy childhood. Um, I gave my life to Jesus when I was age eight. Um, it, my sister was very ill at the time and God miraculously healed her and the whole family came to Jesus and I had quite an easy ride, I would say, as a Christian. Jesus became my best friend. And I just spent time talking to him, loving him. And, um, yeah, um, I think there were some negatives in my childhood, which didn't really start to come out until um, late in our marriage at some point. Um, I'm just going to mention some of them because kind of what we talk about later, um, kind of that's come out of some of these problems. So I think my sister being ill, um, she got a lot of attention. um, So I felt quite left out and um, not good enough. There was also that um, 
growing up in, uh, in a farming family, um, I was the second child. My um, sister was the first, so my dad was hoping for a boy to take over the farm. So um, there's always that sense in me of thinking I should have been a boy. And um, the neighbour, who, um, son, who used to be, who was a boy, he would come down to the farm and do the work with my dad. But um, when he wasn't available, I would get called on, as, and I just felt like the substitute. Um, uh, but it was like I ended up with the work, so I kind of felt like that's not really fair. <laughs> and I think in among all that, I was very uh, afraid of my dad. He, he was quite a loud-spoken man, and I was very shy, so I would run and hide behind a chair. Um, and also, when I started school, I didn't speak for six weeks. My friend next to me had to... Um, answer the register for me and <laughs> and then um, I got smacked on the legs by the teacher after um, so many weeks to try to get me to talk so that's that's a little intro of, of who I am <laughs> I didn't smack her legs this morning <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah so um, I, I equally um, was I uh, grew up in a, actually grew up in a Christian family. My parents were involved in kind of uh, back in the seventies. We grew up kind of church planting, um, but uh, not with some of the kind of the kind of maturity of the apostolic kind of uh, support and uh, values that we have within New Frontiers. Um, but my, the, one of the issues, they're, they're church families and their church families are there, Christian families and Christian families. And, and my Christian family was really legalistic. And, um, and so I didn't really actually learn the gospel. I learned a version of, well, I, I learned a false gospel, really. You know, I, I, I did become a Christian um, as a, at about the age of eight, but, uh, but had this understanding that God was always angry with me. Um, and I had to always earn his favor. And, uh, and uh, also, one of, the, one of the things that happened quite early on in my childhood, was, well, as, as in puberty, was that actually I, um, I began to have um, kind of the first kind of experiences of kind of sexual feelings. And um, it, it, there was a very, quite, quite for me, I think it was probably about 10 or 11, and there was quite a traumatic experience where my mum kind of found out about stuff that was going on with my body and uh, absolutely shamed me uh, over it. Um, at the time, I just was embarrassed, didn't really understand what it was about. Um, uh, but it, what it did was it began to write a narrative in me that you know, anything to do with sex is shameful um, and to be hidden um, because you know, people who need to be impressed or uh, approved, approve of you, uh, will think badly of you. So that, that was one of the narratives that kind of began to speak into me. Um, but also, I was in a kind of high-performance... This whole kind of legalistic stuff kind of created a high-performance thing in me as well, which meant that I needed to perform well. I had to find something I was good at that I could earn people's approval from and achieve well in that. Uh, and so things began, began to become quite important for me, idolizing certain things that I could gain achievement from and significance from. And, uh, and, the, and, and one of the other things for me was, because we, for a re period of time, we lived in a community of, of like people living together, and um, a big, big community, and we became kind of disconnected as family in that time. And, uh, and so there would be often times when I'd be going to bed just wanting mum or dad to come and give me a hug and say goodnight to me, and that just didn't happen. And so I just began to experience this lack of comfort in my life. And, uh, and so part of my story, as I'm going to tell it in a bit more, is how uh, certain things became 
uh, sources of comfort for me uh, as I as I grew up into adulthood. Um, and so, so these are some of the kind of the kind of the pre kind of shapings of us before we enter marriage. So we entered marriage to quite broken people, just not that aware of how broken we actually were. Um, and, and the other thing we entered marriage with was also a kind of um, an idolized kind of expectations. Um, and, uh, you know, it's great hearing the teaching, this biblical teaching we've been having over these last couple of days, isn't it? And I think as you grow in faith and you grow in a community of believers, you get the sense of actually that, that marriage is, is God's design and there's something greater. But we come with cultural views of marriage, don't we? And, and so we both had that. And, and one of my uh, kind of idolized expectations of marriage was that I would, uh, my wife would meet all of the needs in me that I, I you know, she was going to be able to meet all of this need of comfort, comfort, and also this, the need for my significance. So I, I had this kind of super kind of uh, savior mentality. Anybody had savior complexes? Um, and so, you know, I was the white knight in shining armor, the Tom Cruise of the movies, and I'm going to come and rescue this maiden from the, mount, the hillside farm and all that sort of stuff. And uh, so those were my idols anyway. So, so um, John came riding in on his um, whatever he came in. <laughs> It, it was his, yeah. It was his Ford Cortina that <laughs> that got nicknamed the Courting Cortina, <laughs> and um, we started dating and we got married. Um, and my expectation in it all was that um, I would find healing, um, and almost kind of looked to John as a saviour from some of the things in my past. Um, he'd chosen me rather than my sister. Um, and I was kind of treasured by him. I was chosen. I was loved. And, you know, there's a big white dre wedding dress and floating down the aisle. And he turned and he looked at me and he just was blown away. And I was just like, oh, this is amazing. This is all I've ever dreamed of. This is going to be wonderful. <laughs> so um, that was kind of where I was at. And um, it was into that that um, I think God had to start working and kind of show me that my identity was being, I was looking for it in the wrong place. Yeah. Which we're going to talk a bit more in a moment about. So just, I just want to underline some of the things that we've been learning over these last couple of days. And Cheryl's even just said it this morning that, you know, the, the problems are often within us and Jesus is the answer. And so, you know, the only Jesus saves... And, and that means only he is our rescue and only he satisfies. And that's, that's really, really key. And, it, and this is the good news as well, that Jesus is restoring all things. He's making all things new. And so even though we enter marriage broken people, he is in the business of making us whole and restoring us and making us new. And he, he, that's what he does, isn't it? He repairs, he rebuilds, and that's what he's doing in our lives. And marriage is an amazing context for that to happen. Um, and it's a setting of discipleship. It's, it's a place in which God wants to work out his character, the character of Jesus in us. And, and that's what he's doing. Christ is being formed in us. And so when, what we're going to talk about as we go into this is, is the, the, the kind of the story of our brokenness, but also a testimony of restoration and a testimony of hope as well. Um, so the problems of our brokenness began to kind of emerge um, uh, 
all of this stuff happens over a period of time, doesn't it? These things just come out gradually. It's not suddenly, some, suddenly you wake up one day and go, where did these problems come from? They're just there. They're normalized into our lives in, in, in just sort of different ways. And we kind of accommodate them and make room for them in our marriages. And um, so one of my uh, issues was um, that I uh, became uh, the adultery of my heart was a really big issue. So, uh, you know, I was looking for comfort in things and, um, and sex became a avenue for comfort. And uh, I, I was, because of my religious background, I wasn't the kind of guy who would run into relationships and um, sex became an active part of those relationships. I was too uh, externally good um, for that to happen. Uh, but the sin was very actively flourishing in the hidden place of my heart. And the outlet for that, for me, was pornography. And so uh, it came in lots of mild forms initially and then gradually became, with the advent of lots of technology, became more and more accessible uh, in the unseen ways. And so I grew into uh, a pretty significant uh, porn addiction. Um, always living with the shame of that and so hiding that and you know, kind of making sure that nobody could see that um, wherever possible. Uh, there'd be times when I might talk to Karen about it and kind of try to uh, find ways of disclosing uh, as much as what I think I could get away with uh, without it causing too much consequence um, in our relationship. And so um, you know, kind of that was really kind of part of it. But then th it would just go back to being hidden again. Um, one of the uh, kind of more, well, I can't say more serious, but one, one of the ways in which it kind of bled outside of uh, just uh, kind of pornography to human relationships um, was uh, at a season when I was working uh, in an organization uh, and one of my colleagues um, was... Um, a woman about my age, and I began to kind of develop quite strong feelings for her and, uh, and had quite a lot of an emotional kind of attachment uh, to this person. I, I would have never uh, kind of recognized or acknowledged that I was being unfaithful to Karen in that. Um, my justification was, well, we haven't done anything, we haven't slept with each other, or anything like that. But it was, um, you know, over time became uh, a unfaithfulness of my heart because I had an affection for somebody else and I was eff effectively committing adultery in my heart um, as well uh, as the porn stuff was also uh, in, in my relationship with this work colleague. Uh, alongside that um, I had kind of also a conflicting uh, addiction uh, which was to success um, and status. And so uh, for me, um, the pathway of uh, accomplishment and achievement for me was in ministry. Um, most of my life, I went to Bible college and then from Bible college was involved in some form of ministry or another, um, both in church, but also in kind of Christian ministry organizations as well. And so uh, was always looking to achieve, to succeed, to be somewhere, somebody have and, and be successful in kind of Christian stuff. And so um, that became an idol in my heart as well. And so these were kind of working against one another because of the fear of kind of being caught out in some sin and dis the disqualifying nature of that in relation to a kind of holding on to and preserving ministry. Um, and so this led to a kind of a leading of a double life, the grip of shame, um, whilst all of this stuff was going on behind closed doors.
So I'd married this Christian man who I thought was passionate for Jesus because that's what I'd seen in him. And because I didn't have brothers, I was unaware of kind of anything, any thoughts that boys had. Um, so I was just aware of how I felt and um, kind of assumed he'd chosen me, loved me, and that that was it. It was like, you know, there was no issue about what I looked like or anything because he'd chosen me and I was living in that. And so um, when John came to me, um, I think it was af just after having children that this started coming out, that he came to me and he was kind of saying, I've got some stuff I need to tell you because I need to bring it out into the light. I need to share it with you because I am, it is actually kind of a, a, a way of, um, I'm not honouring you. Um, I, I didn't really know how to handle it. Um, and I think it just kind of started to build on that sense of I'm not good enough. Again, I'm second best. Um, and um, I kind of started measuring myself against the world. So every magazine you see, you'd pick it up and there's always kind of summer ones with bikini-clad women. And it was like, I'd look at that and think, yep, don't look like that. Don't look like that. Don't look like that. And it's like, well, unless I want to spend thousands of pounds actually making myself like these airbrushed images, um, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe I'll just... Um, completely cover myself up and hide from John. Then he doesn't have to look at me because obviously I'm just not good enough to be looked at because he's choosing all these other women to look at. And basically the only thing I liked about myself, I think, was about my maybe my feet and possibly my hands. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that, so that really didn't do my self-esteem any good. And all of this stuff that I'd entered marriage feeling kind of came crashing down um, but I think because John had shared his history with me about his childhood, I was accommodating of it because I wanted to love him. I wanted to see him kind of be healed. I wanted him to find, I think, ultimately comfort in me, which again was a, a wrong aspect because I, I wasn't like thinking you need to find comfort in God. I was like, please find everything you need in me. So um, that was kind of a wrong focus again for me. But I think in that time, for me, um, I became vulnerable as well. Um, there was some, one of our neighbours, um, I got a cleaning job. He was an accountant. And he, um, when the children were little, he invited me to go and clean. And he'd start coming through when I was cleaning. It was um, kind of six o'clock at night or whatever. And he'd come with a glass of wine, which I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. I was like, oh, thank you. You know, a cup of tea would have been fine, but a glass of wine... And he would just sit and chat, and um, and it was kind of I realised I was um, kind of chatting to him about things I shouldn't have been talking to him about. So it made me vulnerable um, to other men, really, because there was this loss that was going on, this grief inside me, and um, not really knowing how to handle it all. Um, so um, we carried on like this for a number of years, really. Um, Kind of John kept um, coming to me and saying, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry, I've done it again. And then a few months would go by, I'd be like, yeah, I, I forgive you, kind of. Um, <laughs> and then we, we'd carry on. But I wasn't addressing anything that was going on inside me. I was just kind of 
torn apart by it, but I boxed it off. I kind of thought, I'll just, you know, I can understand why he's doing it. Um, so uh, we, we carried on like that until um, 2009 it was. And then I would say we hit um, a crisis point. It was what I would call, um, I don't know if you've seen the film, The Perfect Storm. Everything kind of converges together to create this big storm where everything's, all the weather fronts are hitting and you get massive waves and things. So um, in 2009, um, my dad suddenly died of a heart attack in his sleep overnight. There was no warning. Um, and I, I was the one that, with my mum, we, we found him in bed. Um, and that absolutely hit me hard. Um, I'd been working for my dad. Um, he had two businesses, and we lived just up the road from my mum and dad, and they were very much part of our lives and our children's lives. And I think we I was, was still very much part of the farm, and I loved farming. I loved the animals. I loved helping out. I loved hair time. Um, it was kind of a dream life. We had horses in the field, we had chickens in the field, there was little lambs being born that I was helping to lamb. So it, it, it was like I, I went into the field the morning after he died and I just sat down and I just did not know which way was up. I just was reeling, kind of thinking, I do not know what to do. And um, all the stuff with John just had to kind of go somewhere in the background. Um, and then out of that, I immersed myself into sorting things out. Um, I'm a corper, so I was like, I'll sort my mum out because she wasn't well. So I spent two years sorting all the farm out, selling the business for her. Um, but I was just kind of living in shock. And um, the grieving was... It, I wasn't really um, allowing myself any time to grieve. I just didn't know what to do. I'd never experienced such loss. And it was a loss of a lifestyle for me, as well as a parent. And I was, uh, I would have dreams, and I would wake up, and I didn't know what was real. I didn't know if my dad was still alive or whether he died, and I would have to sit for five minutes and think about it. I, I, it was just one, a massive shock. But during this time, John stepped into leadership in the church, um, and he, he did ask me about it, and I, I was in such shock and days that I was just like, whatever, just whatever you want to do, we'll do it. Yes, I've just, yeah. If you think God's saying that, I, I'm just not hearing. I've got this massive fog. I can't hear anything. I can't see anything. So we moved um, in 2011 up to Penrith. Um, and, yeah, I just lived in this cloud of, of I don't know, just confusion, really. But I spent three years trying to be a good leader's wife. Um, <laughs> I kind of I've seen others, so I thought, well, I can do that. I can cook meals. I grew. I'd been on a farm. I knew how to cook. We had silage time and hair time, and uh, kind of a dozen men in the house at a time. So I, I knew what to do, in that sense. And I tried living up to people's expectations um, in the church for what um, a leader's wife should be. But I was still missing my dad and the farm and the life that I'd had. So I, I reached a point, um, it was in 2014, where I was just very broken, very disillusioned. Um, I think probably my heart was quite hard towards 
John and towards God because I was blaming them for all of this that had gone on. John had moved me away from what I loved and that had obviously come from God. Um, <laughs> and I was living a life I didn't really want to live. Um, and I started having panic attacks. But again, I found myself, um, I, I'd got a little a job, which was two days a week. And again, I found myself, I loved being there. And again, there was a man that appeared. And um, he started just chatting to me and kind of, are you all right today? I'm like, not really. It was normally a Monday after Sunday at church. I'm like, no, it was an awful day yesterday. Such and such wanted me to, to go around and um, make a meal for somebody. Oh, can't be bothered with that. Why, why can't they cook for themselves? What's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, he would chip away. And then there came a day where he was like, why don't you just leave your husband? I'm like, what? And it, that was like a slap in the face. I was like, why, why would I want to do that? And it was like the enemy was just attacking at a level I couldn't see it. Um, yeah, so that's where I was at. Yeah. So um, my focus was very much on uh, pursuing my idols uh, of self and also ministry that was the place where I could get my uh, fix of status and success and so whilst I was kind of concerned for what Karen was going through and, and our family um, my focus really was on pursuing this opportunity to kind of realize my dreams um, in leadership and so uh, was cracking on leading the church uh, very um, confident that um, we were going to do something really successful with this church and um, and the family was just going to kind of get swept up in that and come along with us in that and so um, you know it, it, it became a source of resentment to me watching uh, Karen and our children uh, struggling more and more and I, I was getting frustrated frustration is anger um, and I was getting frustrated I was getting resentful uh, there was the I would read there were there was the ways in which that was coming out were not fruit of the spirit. <laughs> it was all the opposites of all of that, um, and uh, I was uh, effectively bullying my my Karen and my kids uh, into compliance um, and kind of coming with me on the journey and helping me to achieve what it was that I was here to do, and. Um, and so uh, it was. It was driving these guys into the ground, and um, and uh, and then uh, we uh, we were the church was going through some quite challenging times, uh, which I'm not going to tell the story about. Um, but in the midst of all of that, um, we uh, God began to do two things. He began to bring a serious weight of conviction on me. I was at a meeting actually where Roger was speaking. Um, about Aaron uh, making the golden calf for the people to worship whilst Moses was up on the mountain and uh, talking about how Aaron didn't take responsibility for the sin in which he led himself and the people into idolatry. And God was just so uh, convicting me about this. I knew I had to take responsibility for my sin um, and the damage that was doing to not only my, me, but my family and the church. And so um, I, and, but to, to deal with that sin and to take responsibility for that sin meant 
uh, actually getting help and, and w bringing that out into the open and, and, and being honest about that. I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. And that probably meant for me laying down everything that was my idols, you know, possibly losing our marriage, possibly losing everything in the life of the, that I b was wanting to build in terms of ministry. And, uh, and that was kind of a very uh, kind of scary place to kind of land and come to. And so um, we, but we, we my, our fa you know, the family was getting destroyed. The church was failing in, lo in, in real, real kind of, in the ways in which we measure success in church life. And, um, but, and God was just like on my case and there was nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. So we knew we needed help. And what we, what we were, uh, as we kind of look back on this, you know, you kind of telescope all this stuff, don't you, and see it from a particular viewpoint. But I think we could see God was working in both of us over a number of years. And um, there became crunch points for us where I think somebody asked a question about, you know, get accessing outside help. And, and, and these guys actually became the, the place where we came to. Um, first of all, I came and spoke to Roger uh, and just said, um, here's my resignation um, sort of thing. I need to disclose to you this stuff that's going on in my life. And, um, but actually, these guys began to journey with us and to, to walk with us through this and to begin to help us to deal with this. And we, we just, uh, yeah, encountered uh, God's grace. But I'm, I'm going to talk a bit more about that in a minute. So it was this cr perfect storm that Karen's talking about that led us to crisis and to a place where we knew we had to face this stuff and let God in and that involved letting people we trusted in as well. Um, so, yeah. So I think that was when um, kind of God, God was always there through it all, um, and I did continue to have relationship with Him. But then I think it was at this point that He started to kind of start stripping back. Um, it was like it's no use just carrying on glossing over all of this stuff and thinking it's okay. It can remain there. It was like no, it can't. It can't remain. This has got to be dealt with. And he and I felt the strength to start addressing it and um, kind of start addressing the grief. But also there was grief in me for in terms of our marriage. So I faced up to the full reality of the sin that was damaging our marriage. Um, I, I had a dream where I felt um, really spoken to and it was about kind of some this sewage coming into our home and we were just going through it, trampling through it and letting it remain there. And to me, that spoke about the pornography and um, kind of all, all that horrible stuff that you don't really want to talk about you it's like it should be flushed down the toilet and away and done away with you shouldn't need to be touching it and dealing with it and that's how I'd been handling it so um I felt this is now the time to start um to talking to John about it and I suddenly felt the full weight of it and I went to John I said look it says in the Bible that if you so much as look at another woman, you have, you've committed adultery, and that is how I'm feeling. And initially, um, he didn't really think that was fair. Um, <laughs> so, so I went, I disappeared off. I was like this, <laughs> trying to deal with it, and he's telling me it doesn't really matter again, and it does matter, and we need to face up to this. 
And so I just started, I went back and we started talking about it and I was, I was able to say, look, this has eaten away all of this in me and if it carries on, it is going to destroy the person that I am. Um, and, you know, I, I don't even want to be a woman, I just want to be a blob um, because that's what it's done to me. So um, I realised that I was in this pit of despair with all this stuff that had been going on. And um, I knew that God wanted to get me out of that place because that's not the place he wants us to live. But I also realised that it had these slimy walls of um, self-pity because every time I started addressing all this stuff, I just felt sorry for myself and blamed anybody. John got blamed, God got blamed, even Roger got some blame um, because he'd been part of getting John into leadership in the church. So it was like anybody that was anywhere on the horizon got some blame. Um, and um, I thought they all, they all should come to me and give me an apology. I, I'm, that's what I, I should have. And I don't know what else, maybe um, a, a weekend at spa or, you know, it's like... <laughs> And that should go on for the rest of my life because this is, this is serious stuff, this. I, I've been damaged. <laughs> but anyway, we, um, I went um, for some counselling because I, um, it was like I was getting nowhere. I was just staying in this pit. Um, and I came away from... I had a number of counselling sessions and I don't think I picked a particularly good counsellor because she just gave me some coping mechanism. She's like, could you take on some extra hours at work? I'm thinking, I really don't think that would be a good idea because then I'll, I'll just see this man even more. Um, and then she's like, well, could you go and book some horse riding lessons because that's what you used to enjoy? I'm like, well, yeah, but that's going to last, what, an hour? Um, what am I meant to do the rest of the time? So um, I came away from that quite... It actually made me very mad, which was a good thing, I think, because it kind of sparked a flame. So I went to God, and um, I started saying to him, I said, God, you, you promised me things. I'm looking, I was looking in the Bible, and I, I was looking at um, Psalm 16, verse 7, and um, it talks about fullness of joy. And I'm like, there's, there's this fullness of joy in your presence, and I'm not experiencing that, and I'm coming to you. So I'm going to spend time, I'm going to press into you for that. And there's this, this other one about peace which passes all understanding um, in Philippians. It's like, I haven't got a lot of that either right now. Um, and, and then the verse that he guided me to was um, about setting my mind on things above. And I realized I'd been living going down all these little pathways of self-pity and they were leading nowhere. They were just leading me to dead ends and I was just left at this dead end doing, just feeling annoyed, mad, whatever. And I read this quote, um, Johnny Erickson Tarder wrote, um, either you go over the edge or you go deeper into God. So I thought that, that's what I need to do then. I need to go deeper into God and spend time with him um, so I did I spent I would say I spent every day surviving it wasn't um, particularly pretty um, my times with God sometimes I would just sit and cry um, but I generally would look up a psalm because I thought I need to start somewhere so uh, the psalm almost became like a paracetamol for me and it eased the pain <laughs> And I would just sit and look at it 
and let it sink in, let, and let it kind of do its work. Um, I, could, I had no energy to do anything other than that at the time. But through that time, um, what I realised was actually Jesus was becoming my rock. Even though I wasn't feeling like there was a lot of change, there was, a, there was this change that was happening where the rocks that I'd had in the past of my lifestyle and my farming family and the sheep and the cows and um, even John, all of them things that had been my rock... Um, had been wrong and um, Jesus was wanting me to come to him and find my, he, that he would be my rock and that my identity and security would be in him alone. So even, even if circumstances didn't change, it didn't matter because in him I can have all this fullness of joy, this peace um, and you know I, I was in a perfect place really. So I this was very, very slow, I've got to say. It didn't happen overnight. Um, and it was, yeah, probably painfully slow for John. But um, as that happened, what um, I found was God then began to kind of hint at forgiveness, which I didn't want to look at for a while. It was like, you know, I was still expecting I needed these some a lot of hotel breaks and a lot of holidays and... <laughs> And it was like, you know what, this forgiveness stuff does apply and I need to kind of enter into it and, yeah. So I, I, I said, okay, right, we'll, we'll go with it. You've been, you've been good so far, God. You have started filling me with some of this joy that you're talking about, so I will. Yeah, I'll carry on this journey with you because it's definitely better than this pit over there. So... um. I think we went to see Roger and Cheryl and I was in probably a rubbish place and um, they knew we were going on this holiday to the Outer Hebrides so they just said, it was great wisdom, I tell you, just go off and enjoy your holiday and we'll get together afterwards. We'll, let's just, you know, we'll, we'll pray for you and off you go. I thought, oh, well, that's some help, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They did offer us more at other times. I've got it wasn't they didn't just do that every time. They, they they did talk a lot into our lives, but this particular time it was go on holiday. So I think God God maybe hinted to them about this. So we set off on we booked this trip to the Outer Hebrides. We decided we wanted an adventure. Um so we went with our bikes and we were going to bike from the south to the north, um, because the wind was always was meant to blow from the south to the north. But as we got onto the island, we looked at the forecast and the wind this particular week turned and started blowing north to south. So we, we set off on our bikes and it was hard work. And um, we were pedalling along side by side. There was rain coming down, there was hail, there was wind. I, I mean, you even had to pedal to go downhill, but doing that... You had to break because the wind was coming sideways as well. And I, it's the only time I've experienced it. I thought it was going to take the wheels out from under me. So I was pretty freaked out by this. Thing. this is, and I got annoyed with God. I was like, this is meant to be a good holiday. <laughs> so I started kind of... It was all right. I could cry because it was raining. So I had tears <laughs> and rain. And um, I was pedalling along going, God, this is just not right. And it, as I was doing it, I was thinking, you know this, well, this is just like it's been these last few years. It has been like pedalling along against the wind. Um, 
and just hard work. Um, before we'd gone on this trip, um, John had come back from a conference and he'd bought me some music, and um, which I was like, that touched me, because I'm like, oh, he's thought about me, that's quite nice. And um, one of the songs on there was about your love in wave after wave crashes over me. And as we journeyed across the sea, I was looking at all these waves and there was just that sense of God's love. And I'm like, these waves never stop. So I was just, that love was starting to sink in. And um, it was, um, as we were biking along, I was reflecting on that. And then John said, I tell you what, you just took in behind me because if we're both biking into the wind, that's just hard work for both of us. So you, you took in behind me. So I did. Um, and then we were meant to swap around, and I was meant to take the lead. But we did that briefly, and it lasted about five minutes. <laughs> and John was like, "You're just not, you're just not, um, you know, going to be able to do it, are you, love?" I'm like, "Nah, well, I'm not even going to put up a fight." And no, I can't do that. So he took me in behind, and we biked about 200 miles like that, <laughs> o- over um, five days. But the thing that as I was crying and calling out to God and saying, this is, just, this is just my life, I noticed John just kept turning round and checking on me. His head would just turn and then he'd look back. He didn't say anything, but this went on for miles and miles and miles. And there was just that sense of his love and that care that was coming through. I hadn't asked him to check on me, but he would be, when he went uphill, he started slowing down. And I was, that just spoke to me about the situation we'd been in. He hasn't just gone on ahead in leadership in the church and dragged me along. I'm, I'm tucked in behind, and he is, he is looking at me. I've just not seen it because I've been so hard of heart, really, towards him. So that just communicated his care to me, really. And then at the end of the trip, um, we'd got off the... Fi- we were about to get on the ferry, and he said, oh, just, just come with me, I just want to take you to a shop. And um, he'd been away at a conference the week before, and he'd rung me up and said, love, is it all right if we give some money to you? There's an offering. And I'd said, yes, yes, of course, yeah, just whatever you think, you know, you know what's um, in the bank account. So that had been that, and I'd thought no more about it. Well, he took me into this shop, and he said, love, he said, I want to buy you some jewellery. And I'm like, oh... Can, can we afford it? He's like, well, I didn't actually put that money in the offering because I wanted to give something to you. And I was just like, wow. And um, he actually bought me these earrings. And um, that was just there was just that communication of love that he couldn't have done by just talking and talking and talking. Um, it was I was just aware of it. As he biked along, it was in his heart to love me because... It was there all the time, um, and I'd just not seen it. So I think. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, I think the uh, thing that um, God was was doing in me was he he was realigning the affections of my heart um, from ministry and identity and status and roles and functions to. Uh, being a child of God and being a husband and being a father and learning to love God and my wife and my children. 
And, um, and so giving into an offering like that story was for me a means to an end. It was a means of being able to achieve something of some, you know, um, Lee and Stacey were talking about my, the bank of love and my love bank was actually about status, all these idols. I was paying into the idolatry of ministry and all this stuff. So giving wasn't so much about being faithful to God and obedient to him, what he's called us to give. It was actually about me scoring some points with God. And, um, and so, you know, to, to actually say, no, God was re redirecting me and saying, love your wife. Take responsibility for the, the woman you have given yourself to and who I've given to you and love her as Christ loves the church and lays his life down for her. And there became many simple, practical things where I could argue with Karen about the right thing to do and the spiritually good, right thing to do. But actually, there was no love in Karen in that. It was just serving my idols. And so God was saying, no, actually redirect that affection and love your wife. And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of what was going on in that. But in terms of, I just want to mention, talk a little bit about how uh, God helped me to come into the freedom from the particular addiction uh, um, that we've mentioned before, the whole pornography thing. And there was just two or three things that God had to uh, lead me in and help me to kind of grow into and step into. And um, I, one of the things that um, I had to do was that I, like Karen talked about, facing the kind of full force of the sin, I had to... Uh, I think it's in Ephesians, it talks about uh, walking in the light. It, it, is it in Ephesians? Somewhere it talks about walking in the light. Um, it is in the Bible. <laughs> Walk in the light as he is in the light. And, um, and I know, I, I knew God was speaking to me about stepping out of the darkness and walking in the light. And so for me, that looked like confession, it, full disclosure. Uh, not just bits that I thought I would get away with that would li be damage limitation, but really just being completely vulnerable, completely honest, completely open. The real bit, one of the big difficulties for me in that was that it was actually a cause of increasingly visible destructive uh, force in Karen as well. And so to actually talk openly and real and honestly with Karen about what was I was responsible for. I knew it was going to do damage to Karen, and I knew that it was going to do damage to our relationship. And that was really difficult to kind of get through, work through and, and, and deal with that. Um, but, but that and, and what that actually ultimately required me to do was to lay down the idols of my heart, the idols of ministry, because it might risk that. And I, or, or lay down the reputation idol, because it might risk that. If I am open and real and honest about this stuff, then people might find out, and what are they going to think of me? And, and ultimately, it involved laying down the idol of self-righteousness as well, that I could be somebody in God by my own strength and in my own effort. And so I had to lay this stuff down and not just let, be in confession and disclosure about the sin of pornography, but also be in full disclosure about these idols with myself as much as anybody else. And, uh, and, and it, that involved facing and really being able to uh, experience, like Karen described, herself feeling the full force of this. I had to also feel the weight of this sin and the damage that it was doing to Karen. And, uh, and to not just be a coward and hide away from, and kind of like ignore the responsibility. I've caused this. 
I'm responsible for this. I can't blame anybody else. I can't blame my past or my childhood or my mum or all the stuff that's happened. I've got to take responsibility uh, for this and, um, and recognise the impact of the damage that it has actually done to... You know, the problem with pornography is often that we dehumanise it. And so it's just I'm lusting after an image rather than an actual person. And, and I'm not really doing any damage to Karen because I'm not inflicting that on her, but actually seeing the actual damage that was occurring to Karen's identity and her security. And this image, God spoke to me one day about, you know, often at the end of the day you might walk around the house and lock the windows or doors of the house before going to bed. And, and one day I hadn't done that. And when we lived up on the, farm, on, on, on the hillside, and it, there wasn't often a need to do that. But there was a day when I heard a noise downstairs and I thought somebody had come in the house. I went downstairs and the door had just blown open. And, and God was speaking to me about, John, you're not taking responsibility for, for protecting and providing safety for your family. You, you know, whilst this, this sewerage is running through the house, I'm spiritually opening the door and inviting the enemy into our home and into our family. And I'm responsible for that. Um, and in Job 31, it says, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain. I think that's a metaphor for something else. Um, and may other men sleep with her. <laughs> it actually, in the, ESV, in the ESV, it says, May my wife grind for another man. Um, that would be, have been wicked, a sin to be judged. It is a fire that burns to destruction. It would have uprooted my harvest. And this was what was happening. This sin was, was a fire burning to destruction and uprooting our, our harvest, the harvest of our home and family and, and ministry and everything. And the thing is this, the damage isn't done at the moment of disclosure. The damage isn't done when I confess to, to Karen or to Roger and go, oh, and the, you know, the damage is done in, in that sense in terms of consequence. But the damage is done at the moment of sin. When I choose to give myself to that sin, that's when I'm doing the damage. Sowing to the flesh will reap destruction. I've already sown it. I've sown that destruction already when I've sinned at that moment. And I, I was needing to accept that responsibility and, uh, and involving that coming just... And, and the, the next thing... And, and involving this, you know, we, we were hearing about the importance of reconciliation and forgiveness, and Karen's talked about forgiveness. On my part, there was an issue for me. My responsibility in reconciliation is repentance. I have to repent. It's, hard, it's actually, I think, I think it's, without repentance, there can't be reconciliation either. If I'm perpetuating the sin, it will continue to sow destruction. And there comes a point where Karen has to say, this is an unsafe environment for me to live in. And so, you know, that this issue of repentance was really, really important for me. And I needed to repent. I needed to turn away, not just physically from that stuff, but in the area where my mind was really messed up. And I, I said before about how my, uh, I'd never understood the gospel. And as I, uh, God began to journey me uh, with the help of Roger and Cheryl and just as, God, as, as I was taking that time to just pursue God and seek after God, um, I, I was beginning to understand the gospel and um, understand that you know, shame 
is experienced when I stand before God only dressed in the filthy rags of my self-righteousness. And for years, that's how I presented myself to God, trying to earn his performance. And every time I would sin, I I would kind of shuffle away from God for a bit, kind of try to work myself up with a few good works and behave myself for a bit. And then I would kind of shuffle back into the presence of God and present myself. Is this okay? Thank you, God. I I love your presence. And, and, um, And while sin does, you know, it does... Um, uh, rob us of the joy of enjoying God's goodness and grace and in favor. It actually isn't, uh, and, and this is the thing that I had to understand was that my sin was already actually dealt with. It, it, it wasn't actually um, a, it wasn't actually causing uh, me to somehow be separated from. The, 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 the salvation and, and work of God, God's grace in my life. And I, I had never understood that. Um, and, and I began to understand, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been. When was that? When Jesus was crucified. I have been crucified with Christ. And uh, sin, origi- that, this sin that I was engaged in was originating in my sinful nature. And that is dead. That is dead. It died with Jesus. In Romans, it talks about, you know, when we've, we, we, we were buried with Christ in baptism. And that sinful nature has been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I that live. But what? Christ lives in me. And so I was learning that I have been crucified with Christ and that actually I'm no... And so that's... And, and shame is when I kind of am still trying to live, resurrecting my sinful nature and trying to present it worthy to God. That's what I'm doing. But actually... So that's shame. But glory is my experience when I stand before God in the righteousness of Christ, when I'm clothed in his righteousness. And I love how Jesus' resurrection demonstrates his victory over sin. Because if death is the consequence of sin, resurrection is the consequence of victory over sin. And so if I've been raised with Christ, then I'm no longer a slave to sin. I actually have authority to choose to say no to sin. And, whilst, and, and as I was growing in the revelation of these truths, I began to understand the authority that I have in Christ to choose righteousness and reject sin and turn away from the flesh leading and ruling me and give rule and leadership to the Holy Spirit to govern my heart. And so these were the truths of the gospel that were setting me free i'm a slave to righteousness i'm clothed in his righteousness i've been made holy and made perfect that incredible and to receive and this was really important to receive the forgiveness of god i i couldn't be certain of necessarily of karen's forgiveness i, I there was i i wasn't you know, there were times when I, we, we had conversations and there was even a conversation we had about Karen when, when we were in our, one of our darkest points. Do you even do you want to do you want a divorce? That was one of the conversations we were having. And 
And, and I couldn't be certain that Karen was going to give me forgiveness. But what I had to do in order to not kind of run in fear and panic and try and fix all of this stuff was I, I needed to receive forgiveness from God and to know that he forgave me and that his love was for me. And I remember being in a meeting one day where um, I felt God speak to me. I always used to pray kind of, and when I would come into the presence of God, I'd always kind of be bowed down, and, you know, kind of in this kind of position of kind of submission and, and surrender. But what I began to see was God, I was, I was coming towards God in my shame and I couldn't look into the eyes of God and see I didn't want to look into the eyes of God and see because I didn't know what I was going to see and I felt God saying to me just lift your eyes and begin to look I want to look face eye to eye face to face let's have some intimate contact here and I began to see and as I dared to look what I was expecting to see was the disappointment and the disapproval and all of this stuff that my legalistic past had kind of taught me was what God was like but what I saw was his love. There was no disappointment there. There was just joy and delight in the heart of God for me. And I was like, oh, wow. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. I can't earn it. I just receive it. And that's, that power enables me to walk in the freedom from this sin. And of course, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, doesn't it? And I've been learning in life, and it's an ongoing journey of, actually, where do I go for comfort? The Holy Spirit's my comforter. All that I'm longing for in the false god of pornography and the idols of success, I can find it better and more fulfilling and lasting and satisfying in God himself. If I just... And that's part of what repentance is. I'm, I choose to not go after that. I'm going to go after my delight in God and, and, and all of that. And the learning to love Karen and my kids and be a father to my children and uh, serve in what God's doing in our church and all that is just simply the journey God's got us on at the moment. So that's kind of our story. Okay, let's uh, thank you both, I think, for sharing so honestly, openly, uh, helpfully. You know, we all have our own stories, don't we? But I think in their story, I think there'll be many things that I think God's been kind of landing into your story. Okay? And, you know, and it's for you to work that through with him. Uh, by grace, but I hope you, it was great, I thought, John's on the preach here, <laughs> but I thought it was great, you know, because actually we need to preach to ourselves, not to one another, but to ourselves, and that's what actually John was doing, it was a good visual, he was preaching to himself, so I now am in Christ, and with that comes hope uh, amidst any, and the, you know, the most broken, the most difficult situations.